Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. In this week's first segment, associate editors Kelly Callan and TJ Adams discuss the new Kawasaki KLX 230, but with a slightly different twist. This dual sport actually comes in two other flavors than just the standard neat trail bike we've seen before. Kelly has ridden the SM, Supermoto version, while TJ got her first taste of off-road riding on the S model. That's the one with the shorter seat height. There's not much to dislike on these bikes, but the ladies discovered that there are some differences that might intrigue you. In our second segment, TJ chats with a good friend, Gary Patti. This multi-talented father of five worked as a top-level orthopedic surgeon for around 30 years until he stepped away recently. <laughs> but there's way more to him than just that. As if that wasn't enough, Gary is an artist, a motorcycle aficionado who coaches at the Reg Pridmore Riding School. He's a magician and even a drummer. TJ's chat with him covers a whole spectrum. It's a fascinating insight into a truly accomplished man who has seemingly endless drive to excel at everything he turns his hand to. He's one of the good guys who manages to be modest and fun to be around too. Impressive stuff. So from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling and Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Reputation precedes it, unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bidirectional quick shifter, drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. Its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, blending over 20 years of tradition and innovation. The Hayabusa comes in three new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. So wasn't it great? We both got to ride the Kawasaki 230 range. Yeah, I was on the KLX 230 SM supermoto version. And I was on the KLX 230S, which is the low version, the dual sport bike, yes. And I was pleased about that because um, I'm, I haven't done off-roading before and we went on the dirt and I'm reasonably short, so... <laughs> That was uh, why it suited me, because I could actually flat foot on this bike. I could, uh, you know, put my boots completely on the ground. It wasn't like I, could, I was just on the balls of my feet. So I felt really good about it. 
Yeah, I think it really, um, it's great that Kawasaki made the, the lower version available because for people starting out um, on dirt, you really need to be able to get your feet flat on the ground. That's like a huge part of the confidence puzzle is to be able to feel secure that you can dab down at any point that you need to. Yeah, so we, we had um, quite a bit, uh, we'd spent a whole day riding. So we rode off-road dual sport and we rode on road taking in sort of twisty canyon roads and freeways all that sort of thing it was great fun I, I absolutely loved it I'm really keen now to do more <laughs> um, and just to let people know who are listening I I'm five foot six tall or short and my inseam is 29 inches okay um I'm also five six I've got a longer inseam I'm at 30 and a half um so on the 230 SM that seat height is, it's a little over 33, 33.3 to be, you know, specific. Right. Which might sound like a mismatch with a 30 and a half inch inseam. But as you know, when you settle onto a bike, um, it has some sag there and it settles down a bit. So although I was not flat footed on the SM, I almost, I'm, I'm close. Really, and that's when I'm like stretching down and like really trying to feel it. Can I get flat footed? I'm close, but no. The the actual way that you ride, sort of more casually, when you put your foot down, it's like I I have the ball of my foot on the ground. That's what I have. Um, but I found that the bike is so light; it's just under 300 pounds, like 296 um, for the non ABS version that I was riding. Um, it's so light that I didn't even really notice that I wasn't flat-footed because I wasn't having to balance a lot of weight when I came to a stop. So I feel like people shouldn't necessarily look at that um, seat height and be scared off by it. It's like, you know, go sit on it and see what it feels like. And try it, yes. The S that I was on actually, um, the height is 30, the seat height is 32.7. And that doesn't sound very low and it looks quite high, but as you say, when you sit on it, it sort of sinks down quite a bit. And, and I was very comfortable. Um, it just made me feel at ease about trying things and uh, not worrying too much. It had been raining here and we were sliding around a little bit. So it was helpful to know that I could actually put my feet down and uh, sort of recover if I had to or just do a dab here and there. It was great. I loved it. Yeah, makes makes total sense. And it's for a bike like that, which is going to be uh, sort of a, a target bike for for newer riders keep it low you know once once you develop more skills and more confidence and then you want to have more especially when you're off-road if you need more um, ground clearance and so forth then you can move up to you don't necessarily in fact have to have the s model yes do the do the standards something uh from higher up the range <laughs> literally they haven't just sort of cut the seat out they um kawasaki have actually altered the suspension overall the the seat height has come down 2.1 inches, but the fork travel itself um, has been reduced by 2.5 inches and then the rear wheel travel by 2.2 inches. And so overall you get um, firm compression damping and then softened rebound damping. So you don't have the feeling of grounding out. It's not as though you're bashing up and down on, on your butt, you know, when you go over rocks and big holes and things it's it's really still comfortable it does the job yeah and and they managed to you know give two inches to somebody which is significant yeah makes a big difference just makes you feel sort of positive as if you you can go and try things 
Yeah, absolutely. Also, I don't know about on the SM model, but on the S, the Kellex 230S that I was on, the seat itself sort of um, just gives way to the tank. There's no ridge, there's no gap. So when you're up on the pegs and moving about, leaning forward on the bike, you're not sort of restricted by anything. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty much the same on the SM. It's a very smooth transition from seat to tank. Um, it's really comfortable and it gives the bike a very narrow stance. Uh, so again, you, you don't even waste much of your inseam going around um, kind of a, a fatter seat or, or chassis itself. So that, that helps. And also just having the, the narrow um, frame just makes the bike easier to handle. Well, I found it was good also when I was on the pegs and I, I tried to go up on the pegs as often as possible that I could actually, I could grip the bike between my knees, which helped with throttle control, helps as advised actually by, a, by another rider. If you grip harder with your knees, it relaxes your hands and you can just take more control. Yeah, totally makes sense. And as you said, being up on the pegs certainly helps when you're going over um, the rough stuff off-road. And also, if you're up on the pegs, I mean, you've had some off-road experience, so you're, you're knowledgeable about this, but it, it, it was muddy, as I say, and we were sliding around quite a bit, and it just allowed the bike to do that when I was up on the pegs. <laughs> so that, that made it easier to stay on board. Right, right. Speaking of the seat, though, um, I would say for the you know, for the KLX 230 SM, that's, that's not a dual sport bike. It really is. It's going to be on the street. The tires uh, let you know that as well. But I was going to say the seat is still the dual sport sort of off-road firm and narrow um, style. How did you find that? It works. It totally works. It's, it's comfortable. It's, it's firm enough to feel, to feel good, but it's not like it's hard. So it's, it's a good seat. And again, by keeping everything narrow, it makes the whole package um, feel like not a handful at all. Yes, I didn't notice the seat at all. It was just, you know, easy going. Did you go on the um, freeway as well on the SM? I did. I wanted to check out how capable it was because um, that's a small motor. And so when you think about getting on the freeway, you know, not too sure if that's going to work, but it absolutely does. It's a six speed gearbox and uh, I got it a little over 70. It's probably 70 is really the max. You, you can go a few more miles over, but you, you're going to run into the rev limiter pretty quick. Um, the bike's capable and feels fine at that speed at 70. And that's enough to keep up at least around here, around Southern California, the, um, around Southern California, the freeways are pretty busy and fast moving. So I was staying in the slow lane, um, but I felt fine there. Didn't feel like I was going to get overrun by anyone. Certainly it's going to be comfortable on back road highways and, and, uh, and smaller roads as well. Yes, yeah, so same for me. I went up to about 70, just over actually 71. Um, I mean, it's a small displacement bike. It's 233cc. I was surprised. It, it just took it all in easily. You have to get up through the, the gears quickly because... It's got a, a lot of low down pull, so you have to get up to the top gear quick as you can. Um, and I didn't really notice vibration on the mirrors particularly. A little bit maybe on one side, but, you know, I wouldn't be riding around that speed the whole time on a bike like that. So I can't criticise that. And I could see see through those, see use those mirrors easily. 
Yeah, I I don't think I'd be spending a lot of time on the freeway on on the uh, 230SM. I It would be fine for like a little short hop commute if you need to jump on for a few exits. Uh, there's obviously not any wind protection or anything like that. You've got the totally mm. upright seating position. So, you you know, you're naturally going to take on a little bit more air, but it's it's totally capable for short little hops. And uh, yeah, I didn't see any excess uh, vibration in the mirrors either. You didn't get excess vibration. No, which is kind of surprising. Um, maybe I wasn't looking as much as I needed to, uh, to, to really judge that, but it didn't get my attention. And usually buzzy mirrors do get my attention. So I'm going to say it was just fine. Yes. Yeah. Same for me. I use the mirrors a lot. So the, um, the Kalex 230S has also still got the 21 inch and 18 inch wheel set um, with IRC trail tires, which um, the SM wouldn't have. That would have road tires, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, the SM has street tires. Here's <laughs> street tires. It's got the IRC road winner tires. And I felt they were really, they were really good, well matched to the bike when we took it up into the hills and started going through some turns and leaning over a little bit, uh, totally felt secure, no problem. And, and even I will mention on the freeway at speed, it felt fine. Sometimes bike tire treads don't match up so well with the, the rain grooves in the freeway, you know, and you'll feel a little. Yeah, it sort of moves you around a little bit. Yeah, I didn't feel anything like that on it. So I was, I was quite happy with the tires on, on the bike. Yeah, the, the, the tires on the S, were knobbly obviously because you have to, the off-road sort of stuff to cover so I didn't do a lot of leaning around on the on the street but as you say matched match for the bike because the idea is you can go in the dirt easily right and you said you've got the uh, the 21 and the 18 inch wheel combo because you're going off-road that totally makes sense um, the 230 SM just has the standard 17 inch wheels front and back you know gives it that sporty ride it, right yeah it allows you to turn quicker when you've got the smaller wheel so it's going to be a sportier a um, little bit quicker responding ride than the dual sport version. Excellent. Yeah, they've really thought of everything. Um, the S also, uh, I rode the ABS version and it has the option to switch the ABS off on the rear. So again, useful because you, you go off off road on the dirt tracks. You don't always want the ABS sort of getting in the way. Right. And it's an easy switch. There's just a big red switch. You have to stop, but you can just flick it off. It's really handy. Right. Um, and actually, it's good that you mentioned that because on the KLX 230SM, uh, the ABS is not standard. So you're going to pay an extra 300 bucks for that. Um, and we always recommend that because that just it, safety is a good thing, especially for newer riders, which is who is probably going to be the biggest audience for this bike. I tested it without the ABS. Um, we were going down one sort of neighborhood uh, road that was a little bit of a hill with a stop at the bottom and uh, we were going on at a, a nice clip I mean it was a neighborhood so it's not really that big and actually it's kind of funny you can feel like you're going fast when you're not <laughs> I agree they are fun yeah you feel like you're really nipping around <laughs> you look down and you go oh really 30 oh okay well <laughs> but um, we got to the bottom of this hill and I you know squeeze the, the front brake pretty hard because um, I was going down pretty quickly and it's like, oh, there's a stop at the bottom. And it's and it turned out there was also a little layer of uh, leaves on the street. And so as soon as I hit the brakes, the bike just slid. And uh, oh, yeah, kind of got my attention. And 
as you know, so it's okay. I am, I'm an experienced writer. So I just let off the brakes and, you know, kind of modulated that a bit. And, and it was, mm. but it did kind of make me think, oh, yeah, this doesn't have ABS. And that would be a good thing for a newer writer. They should have that. Yeah, I see it as a safety feature. I think it's good to go for it if you can. It's $300 extra also on the S. Yeah, and that's, to me, that's well worth it. But uh, speaking of the brakes, so I will say the the 230SM has a 300 millimeter disc in the front. And that seemed to me when I first saw the bike, it's like, that seems overkill. You know, it seems like awfully large for such a small bike um, and, and a light bike. You don't have so much to, to stop, but this is a supermoto bike, right? So they're expecting you to ride it, um, you know, maybe quite enthusiastically yes. and be going fast and wanting to stop fast. Um, so the brake is really awesome. It's very confidence inspiring. You squeeze the front brake. There's nothing snatchy or grabby about it. Nobody's going to gonna pull on that and throw themselves over the handlebar. It's not going to happen, but there's just gobs of stopping power. And you feel like there's more than you need, which then allows you to full, you know, ride the bike full out. There's like no worry at all. So that's, that's my favorite parts about the bikes. It sounds kind of funny, but it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, match to what maybe they expect people might be doing on the bike. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely a bonus if you, you know, you're going to stop when you, when you want to, <laughs> when you squeeze the brake. <laughs> yeah. The actual, the controls were actually very nice and easy as well. It was sort of um, gentle to use, easy to use. So, you know, the clutch was easy. It wasn't a struggle. Um, so that makes it easier, I think, for newer riders um, just to get used to things. I think if you've got snatchy clutches and uh, accelerators, you can end up just, you know, really putting yourself off. Yeah, absolutely. And right, you don't have to pay quite as much attention to to like carefully finessing um, the use of those controls. So that is nice. And I have to throw in here one thing that has nothing to do with what we were talking about, but I'm going to forget if I don't say it, <laughs> um, which is the dash, the dash such as it is, it's very, very small, very minimal. I don't mean small, like small to look at, but there's just not a lot on there because there doesn't need to be a lot on there. There's the, you know, you can see your speed and that's in a really nice big font. And, uh, it has, I guess, the time, which I kind of thought is funny that they have that on there. So useful. No, I love it. You know what? I do too. And I always am annoyed if a bike doesn't have it. But I was thinking on this bike, it's like, hmm, why is that there? You know? And I thought, well, because you're having so much fun, you don't want to lose track of the fact that you've been out for a few hours and maybe yes. you have other <laughs> things to do. So I, I thought that was kind of good. But what I was going to say about the dash, really easy to read, clear, it's not cluttered, but the brake cable goes right across it and obscures my view of, of most of it. It's like I find I have to kind of lean forward to get over where that line is, is going. So it, you know, it's kind of funny. That's, I think I've seen that on, it's on a, a dirt bikes. You see that often and you know, there you go. It's a minor thing, but I just wanted to mention it. The dash or the instrument panel on, on the S it's probably similar. I haven't compared, I haven't had a direct look at the SM, but I found it, it was, readable even in the sun you know you get some of them that just have a lot of reflection but i'll just mention that was good because sometimes i'm a little irritated if you're you're trying to see what you're doing and you know there's just glare yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> i know it's difficult to eliminate that completely right right i mean the, the other thing i'll say about 
you know, it being obscured. It's like, uh, there's not much to look at on the dash and not much reason to look at it on the SM. I was thinking about that when I'm riding around. It's like, you know, it's not like there, there's, there's not a, a gear indicator, there's, which I kind of like to look at sometimes, but there's just not much there. And there's not any reason. This is just a fun spin around the neighborhood, run, run a, up into the hills and have some fun. It's, it's not the kind of bike where there's, there's a lot of stuff you need. You don't need to be looking at it, feedback information here on, on the dash. Yes. Yeah. It's more of a fun ride, isn't it? For sure. Yeah. It's a total, total fun, total fun bike. Now I didn't take anything. Well, I, I took a backpack actually, because I wanted to take some water with me, but, um, Obviously, on this type of bike, again, you don't have a lot of storage, but there is a rack available that you can buy and fit if you're commuting or taking stuff to college, that sort of thing. And I thought that was a good idea. But there is a toolbox. So if you are stuck out and you've got sort of a minor repair to do, there's a toolbox locked away under the side panel. I thought that was a great idea. Yeah, always, always good to have that on a dual sport bike, because as soon as you go off road, you just never know. Something could happen. Could ride into a rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Back. instead of going over it oh speaking of rocks on the uh 230sm the suspension is non-adjustable um spring preload in the rear but that's it and it's not an issue it's really not i kawasaki got it right mm. the suspension is well balanced between dealing with the roads around town which are not in great shape so you can go over bumps and so forth and it's not jarring you certainly feel everything but it's not a jarring ride uh, but at the same time there's enough um, firmness to it so if you want to take a spin up in the hills or down in the canyon uh, it doesn't sort of wallow like when you're going into a turn it's not too soft so they got a good a good balance there and um, I guess the they had eight eight inches of travel in the front six and uh a little over six and a half in the back and so there's you know it's a super motorbike so there's enough travel there's enough room for travel in there to soak up some of these bumps well the travel on the s has been reduced it's down it's um seven less than seven inches i think but i didn't have a problem with that at all and i sat down for quite a bit of the time i was trying to stand up but because i'm new i, I did a lot of sitting down and going over bumps and things when I didn't hadn't intended to but I didn't actually find it painful it didn't bottom out you know you'd have to be quite a weight to get it to do that there's a variety of riders there and nobody nobody was complaining about that so I, I think they've they've hit the, a good balance I, I'd rather have the um the low seat height for me that was really important and obviously there's there are many other people wanting that hence Kawasaki have uh, produced this S the weight also on the S, I think you said that the SM is under 300, 300 pounds. Yeah, I mean, just under, it's at 296. That's the the uh, non-ABS version, which is what I tested. But, you know, ABS, I think, only adds another couple pounds anyway, so no big deal. Basically, yeah. 300 pounds is, is a good enough frame of reference. And um, that's, well, while that sounds heavy, if I were trying to lift 300 pounds for a motor. <laughs> As you know, that's that's very light, and um, and it's great. It's great having such a light bike because then you feel more the master of it than it's the master of you, and yes, that makes a huge uh, difference to the confidence when you're riding. Especially as we've said before, slow speed when you come to a stop when you're in a parking lot. That's when you really feel the weight of a bike. That's it when you're trying to maneuver it around. Yes, 
Well, right. And especially like for you riding off road, there are times where you're probably going to be pushing the bike and, you know, that's another place, whether, whether you're on it or off it, you know, kind of pushing with your legs or whatever, it's nice that you're, you don't have to battle a lot of weight. Yes. Yeah. That gets exhausting. No, it's, it's the same sort of weight. The S is just under 300 pounds. So what about the fuel tank? <laughs> the S has got about an 85 mile range and that's plenty for a whole day's riding when you're doing off-road. That's for sure. That's for sure. Our off-road riding, we've, we've been tracking it a lot of times when we go out using um, the Relive app, which is pretty great. And, you know, you'll be out there for a couple hours running around. And then when you're done, you're going, oh, that's 26 miles. What? <laughs> <laughs> no, when you're off-road, you're not going, you know, usually, frequently, you're not going, you know, 65 or 70, covering a lot of territory. Yeah, not such a distance. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the SM has the same two-gallon tank. And, um, you know, yeah, you're going to get some pretty good mileage on that bike. Again, that's not the kind of bike you're going to go any long distance on anyway. No, exactly. Yeah, it's just a matter of like how often you're going to end up at the filling station because you've been, but, but even not, not often, not, not that often, you know, spinning around your neighborhood, which is this bike is just perfect for, it could be a campus bike. And even, as we said, just, you know, running in on the weekend, having a quick little spin through the hills, you're not going to take in a lot of miles anyway, but you can have, you know, a ton of fun on it. Yes, yeah. And on the S also, I'll, I'll just mention um, that they have got accessories available, which is quite clever, because depending on, it's a dual bike, and a dual sport bike, and depending on sort of which way you're leaning, you may not need things like the skid plate underneath, or the handguards, but you can buy those if you're intending to do more and more dirt riding. So I think that's pretty clever. I know you can also get a USB port. And I think I mentioned the rear rack earlier, you can get a rack for it. So it's, it's, very flexible, usable. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And as you said, for the people who are going to tackle more uh, rocky trails and so forth, yeah, you for sure want the skid plate and you probably want the handguards too. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, it'll protect your lever if you fall over, which you probably- Yeah, that's true. It probably protected me without me re even realizing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So the price um, under five thousand, I think that's a that's a good price point. Oh, that's nice. That's quite nice. the The KLX two thirty SM is fifty three hundred dollars, and um, that's the non ABS version. So if you're just budget another three hundred and get the ABS, that just makes sense. It's still a really good price point, I think, for this bike. Um, considering you could do some light commuting on it if you wanted to, uh, it's a very flexible bike to run around town. Mm. It's really, really fun. So I think that's a good price point. Yeah, same on the S. You can pay 300 extra for the ABS. And I personally think it's worth having. Awesome. Well, I love the bike. I loved it so much, actually, I'm going to buy one. <laughs> really, you know, it's, it's spurred me into a new side of my riding, my riding career <laughs> to get off-road. That's awesome because I'm sure that's exactly what what Kawasaki is thinking, or any of the manufacturers, really, when you have a small displacement bike to bring newer riders in and to move them out of their comfort zone, like off the pavement into the dirt. Yes. You know, that's <laughs> the kind of that's the kind of bike you want. You want this this introductory bike to be something that makes you go, you know, this is fun. I, I want to do more of this. So that's great. To yes. 
and you know you it's it's usable by all you know the whole family can use it really well right right that's true that, that's the beauty if you're feeling generous <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> we're lending your bike to everybody right that's uh, just because it's low it doesn't have to be you know only only like the the newbies and the shorter people like myself obviously everyone can have a go on it well and actually just in general that's one of the great things about a small bike and i didn't even mean just um stature wise although gosh that helps but um just engine size wise it's like i'm an experienced rider but i have so much fun on this 230 sm do i care that it's only a 230 in fact that's half of the fun of it is that you can just ride it full out throw it around just have a lot of fun not worry about it you're not managing anything um bigger displacement bikes can can go faster quicker farther well engine it depends on your gas tank of course but but that's not always the only thing that matters um because then you, you're you're spending a little bit of your your energy and your your mental energy sort of managing that power so I, yes little bikes are are so much fun yeah it sort of gives you the freedom you're a bit relieved of being <laughs> as responsible about it i mean about sort of bashing it around a bit yeah yeah, because you know it's small and light, and that's what it's meant for. You could just nip around, and if you brush through trees and what have you, it's not really a problem. Right, right. Feels much more like a. In fact, as soon as I got on the the two thirty SM, I just felt like, oh, I'm on a dirt bike. This felt like a play bike. Um, just and you know, we all like to play for sure. <laughs> Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Kelly. All right, you bet. Bye bye. Reputation precedes it. Unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unmatched acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. The Hayabusa comes in three new color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. In this second segment, TJ chats with a good friend, Gary Patti. This multi-talented father of five worked as a top-level orthopedic surgeon for around 30 years until he stepped away recently. <laughs> but there's way more to him than just that. As if that wasn't enough, Gary is an artist, a motorcycle aficionado who coaches at the Reg Pridmore Riding School. He's a magician and even a drummer. TJ's chat with him covers a whole spectrum. It's a fascinating insight into a truly accomplished man who has seemingly endless drive to excel at everything he turns his hand to. He's one of the good guys who manages to be modest and fun to be around too. Impressive stuff. So you started racing motorcycles when you were 63. Now that is unusual. <laughs> yeah, and some people think that's just crazy. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> But I, uh, I just, I was always fascinated by uh, watching these guys, MotoGP and World Superbike, and always wondered what would it be like to line up on that grid, you know, with crowd there and, 
and then battling it out with these guys. And I'd been riding the track for probably 20, 25 years or so. And, but I always wanted to be in a competitive race. And the way it, it actually happened was I did Yamaha Champ School and Nick Ionach, a great guy. And he, and he said, what are your goals uh, in this whole thing? And I said, well, it's kind of crazy, but I'd really like to do a race sometime. And he said, well, promise me you'll do it. Because if someone says, well, maybe I'll do it someday, you probably won't. You'll keep putting it on hold. So he had me commit to it. So you got booked into race kind of pretty much straight away. Well, I, I didn't just jump into some uh, highly competitive situation. He he suggested Arma, which is a little more laid back, you know, some of the historic bikes. And uh, that was a very receptive group. I joined the, the organization and I had to do the race school uh, to qualify and get the license. And that went really well, too. That was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And we did a mock race at the end of that day. And then we raced uh, Saturday and Sunday. Wow. And how did it feel sitting on the grid, knowing that you had to really have your competitive hat on? Well, it was almost a, this dream sequence. I mean, it was surreal. And my biggest fear wasn't racing, but the biggest fear was making sure I didn't embarrass myself on the start. You got to make sure you're in the right uh, position on the grid. And then you got to watch the flag man and, and count it out just right. So that was my biggest fear. But as we were lining up, uh, they ran three classes at one time. And this guy came around me with this uh, 1980s Yamaha, I think it was. And I looked, and I'm like, that's Josh Hayes. So my very first race, <laughs> I'm on the grid with Josh Hayes. And I just said, it doesn't get any better than that uh, for the first race. No, that's amazing. Yeah, it was fun. So did you overtake him or did he overtake you? <laughs> Oh, I, oh, of course, I, I could overtake, <laughs> really. No, he uh, is an amazing rider. And uh, I think about four laps into it, this is the, the big track at Willow Springs, about three or four laps into it, he came, he lapped me and came around me going into turn three. And it wasn't just a, a little pass. He came by me so fast, <laughs> you could hardly see him. It was a blur. And I thought he's never going to make that turn, but he did. And of course, won his class. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you had a good experience so do you think you would say to people go do it I mean bringing the age thing up again do you think that uh, was something that made you hold back a little bit or would you say to anybody don't wait for someday just do it well first of all I wouldn't ever ever encourage or talk someone into doing it it has to be a personal decision and in my case no one no one talked me into it I'm the one that brought it up and committed to it so I would if someone decides and commits to it, I totally encourage them. And it was, I think it was a uh, reasonable thing to do it with Arma because these people are all, they have jobs on Monday. They don't want to get hurt out there. If I went with uh, some club racing organization, a bunch of 22 year old guys out there that are really trying to advance to the next level, I think that'd get a little bit scary. Gets a bit crazy. Yeah. But I think this was a, you could go at your own pace. No one, was forcing you to do anything and so i think i would encourage anyone if they decide to commit to it to, to consider arma uh, it was an easy thing to do excuse my ignorance what does arma stand for uh, american historical racing motorcycle association right the funny thing is well for me i i love riding on the road and i'm constantly trying to improve myself and that 
involves constantly trying to go a bit faster because that's the way it is but I'm not competitive I wouldn't want to race that would scare the bejeebas out of me <laughs> it's a very personal thing I think so obviously that wasn't your first riding experience you've been riding for some years how did that how did your interest in motorcycles get going well I as probably most of us I started out at you know five six years old with a mini bike uh <laughs> my first was a I had to mow a lot of lawns to to get it and help my dad out at home to get a little three horsepower Briggs and Stratton with tiny little wheels and right around the backyard. And the, I didn't think life would get any better when I finally converted to a five horsepower Briggs and Stratton. And <laughs> with all the neighbors and you know, we'd ride and my dad would take us on his truck out to the end of the country and we'd ride some of the trails out there. But the real motorcycling came in when I was in college and I couldn't really afford a car. So my brother-in-law uh, used to build dune buggies and he he traded some parts or something for a guy's motorcycle. It was a Kawasaki 350 Bighorn. And so he let me use that uh, to get to college. And I just remember getting off the freeway and my hands would be numb because the thing shook so much. But uh -huh. so I rode that for a few years and then uh, I put everything on hold for about 25 years uh, because of going to college, medical school, and having a family and a lot of other commitments. But then 25 years later, I decided I really want to get back into this. And that's how it started. Just kicked off again. That's really interesting that you, I mean, you, you're, you're a surgeon, you're a medical person, and that doesn't kind of mentally rest easily with uh, motorcycle riders. What was your route to becoming a surgeon? Well, yeah, I, I had uh, my brother's <laughs> Uh, erector set, which was a used set with pieces missing and all that, but I love that thing and the way they fit together. And so I started, I was uh, always taking things apart and just love that kind of stuff. But it's the orthopedic surgery is great because it's, you're dealing with mechanical things all the time and plates and screws and uh, yet still diagnosing medical conditions and all that. So I thought it was a good combination, but uh, I, the real reason that, that I went further in education and all that was I grew up in a very small town in in southwestern Michigan and it's a lot of people stayed there and, and God bless them they're great people I just wanted to go out and see more of the world and my only way of doing it I thought was through education and to keep advancing so one thing led to another and here we are wow so you had obviously you have the urge to spread your wings a bit yeah, I always wanted to have, I, I, this sounds really silly, but I can remember at age probably five or six seeing uh, the Beverly Hillbillies and that opening scene, they were in the truck going down, I think was Sunset Boulevard or something. And you see all the palm trees uh, lining the, the road there. And I saw that and I just always thought that place really exists. There's a place like that, California, and I want to be there. And everyone kind of laughed about that and I thought, well, no, that's just a show. And but I always had that, that picture in my mind of these palm trees and California. And so yeah, I was determined and I'd someday be there. I look around, you know, California and various other parts of the United States that we've been to. And it's always the palm trees. They give that uplifting feeling. So I can I can I can understand that. I can understand that. But a lot of people don't actually think they can do things which if they applied themselves they actually could do you know nothing you know not wanting to sound too philosophical but nothing is really as impossible as you think it is 
a lot of friends, mainly through the this motorcycling uh, adventure. And a lot of them are they're very successful people who came from modest means. And we've had some very in-depth discussions about that that concept. It's why did those people decide to go further? And none of us can really answer that. It's some drive that you have, and uh, I don't know what that is. Uh, I'm, I feel fortunate to have had that, but uh, I don't know where that comes from. But a lot of the other people I associate with say the same thing. And uh, yeah, I don't know where that drive comes from. Me neither, I would agree. I have um, a, a younger sister, a couple of years younger, and we couldn't be any more different. She has never left her hometown. She would never even think of riding a motorcycle. Um, she's a completely different personality. Yeah, you know, we, we grew up in the same household until we sort of were late teens, <laughs> 18 years oldish, and yet we're completely different. So I, I can't see why some people do and some people don't. I, I know people have different fears and like, I have to push myself over a lot of things to get things, push my boundaries to do things, even like recording podcasts. It's quite nerve wracking sometimes, but I do it. I make myself do it. And yet some people just, stay kind of in their groove and, and that's where they're happy you know I guess people are happy doing different things in life sometimes I think it's good though to be comfortable being uncomfortable and I just every time I've taken on some new challenge it's uncomfortable and but I think it's it's good to get to those points where it's not a comfortable situation if you're always comfortable are you really advancing or improving um, I don't know I don't want to be philosophical either but uh yeah, interesting. So did you go, you went straight into medical school and uh, straight along the sort of surgical route or did you, was that sort of your planned career from, not, I'm not going to say age five, but I'm, I'm amazed you've got a memory from age five years old. But so, you know, from early years, did you plan to be a surgeon? Uh, yeah, and not necessarily orthopedics. I just thought surgery um, in general and kept pushing for that goal. And one thing I kind of regret is I went to college with the idea that I wanted to get into medical school. And it was very competitive to get into medical school at that time. And But I didn't care so much about college. My goal was just to get to medical school. So I applied early. And through a series of events, I got accepted early. So I never finished college, really. I just, I went two and a half years, although they did give me my degree after my first year of medical school, they counted that as my last year of college. But I kind of regret not finishing college and having kind of fun that senior year after the pressure was off. But I, at the time, I didn't care. I just wanted to get into medical school, and it that worked out. Yes, yeah. And you told me a funny story about so you you started sort of as a magician. I know that sounds bizarre, but it does to me anyway. That sounds bizarre to me. But you started as a magician prior to college. Is that right? And then you you did some sleight of hand trick during your interview for medical school. Yeah, I sometimes I, I don't bring up the magic thing. Like, as people, when you mention magician, uh, people usually picture some guy in tuxedo and tails pulling rabbits out of a hat or something. And uh, I got into the magic not because it was a, a big goal of mine. It, it was a job. And I couldn't get a job in my, this town where I grew up. Upjohn Company was in Kalamazoo, and I kept applying there and a job. So I ended up hanging around this magic shop, and I'll make the story short. But 
met some people there and really liked what what I saw. It was totally different than you know the guy pulling rabbits out of a hat. It was very technical and close range stuff. And but I realized if I did that, I could work at bars at night for tips. Uh, mm. So you'd you know sit down at a table with people and and do these things. And so it was easy because I, when I was in college, I didn't have time to work during the day. So I worked nights at the bars and nightclubs. And that's how the magic thing came about. But I I used it for a lot of things. And not only to help pay for college and part of medical school, but when I did the interview for medical school, uh, the professor that interviewed me, he said, you know, we interview thousands of people and they're, they're all, you know, good candidates. They all have good grades. But what else do you do other than study for medical school? And I said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed, but I was a magician for a while. And he said, well, show me something. And I happened to have a half dollar in my pocket and I pulled it out and just did a quick, uh, it's called a pass and a vanish and uh, nothing special. But he saw that. And he, we never talked about anything <laughs> beyond that point then, uh, that had anything to do with medicine or college. We talked about all kinds of things. And I think he liked the fact that uh, that I wasn't just totally focused on one thing, but that I had other things to do in my life and and I got accepted. I don't I, I can't say it was because of that, but I think that probably at the admissions committee, he probably was an advocate of mine and remembered me because everyone else, you know, we're, we all look alike and have the same grades. But I think he remembered that and uh, it worked out. Yeah, that was a highlight. So, yeah, to remember you, but also it would have demonstrated, you know, nimble fingers and just a thought process of thinking, you know, not on the usual route or route that people take when they're getting their sort of uh, initial jobs, Saturday jobs and what have you. You actually learned something that probably helped you unbeknownst to you in all, in all walks of life, because I guess a lot of it is mental strategy. I only say that because I'm a fan of a, a guy called Darren Brown. He's a UK yes. um, mentalist, I suppose. Oh, yes. Yes. He, he's a mentalist and uh, does some amazing things. And some of those are standard techniques that mentalists use, but he does it in a very uh, deceptive way. I mean, you you would, he's, he's a great entertainer, but he doesn't know a way that you would never uh, imagine how he's doing that, but he does and uh, does a great job at it. I never give away any anything, but there are certain ways to do things that would appear impossible. Uh, and he's very good at doing that and uh, painting that picture and entertaining at the same time. So I have a lot of respect for him. Yeah, I find it fascinating because I like to be tricked, I suppose. And I don't know if that's, well, I guess that's why fans of this sort of thing who, who go and watch um, him sort of persuading them that <laughs> black is white, I suppose they somehow like that mental torture but I like it I'm very entertained by watching it and he wrote uh, he's written a couple of books I hear I'm not a magician but you're not supposed to you don't give away things as sort of a, a code isn't there for magicians but he does explain one little trick really clearly at the beginning of his book which I'm sure is one that's easily out there and uh, I practiced that and I sort of got it to a point but I I just couldn't I couldn't hold the gaze or do the distraction I just find it very difficult most magic is a distraction and uh you get people thinking down one road and throw something in that they didn't expect and it's that surprise or that 
that revelation at the end that gives people the thrill. But it has to be entertaining too. It can't just, you don't, the goal should not be just to fool someone. The goal should be to entertain your spectators. Yeah. And um, you invented a few things during that part-time career for the magic world, I believe. Yeah, there were several things. And uh, and if you look, I, I won't, don't get into all the theories of magic, but there are really only seven, some people say there are 12 uh, tricks in the world. Uh, you know, a vanish, an appearance, uh, transposition, all these things. But mm. so the things that I that I wrote up and uh, and invented weren't real new, but they were just spins on the existing things. Uh, another technique for achieving the same goal. Uh, yeah, there were several things that I that I did there, and I, I'll mention one really quickly. It was funny because it came back into my life later. I used to fly radio control planes. I was probably 11, 12 years old. And they were single channel. It just had a little button you pushed and it would flip the actuator one way or the other. I took a large deck of cards and hollowed out the center of them. I put the little actuator in there with a, one of those Swiss music boxes that you wind up. And it, when you would turn on the, the radio control device, it would click the thing on and the little music box would start. But I put a, a model car tire on it the rubber would push against the card and it would make the card rise out of the center of this deck. <laughs> so I used the, my one radio control that was my prize plane. I had to take it apart and use that for it, but I did five more. And then I sold them to a magic company uh, in Colon, Michigan, which is kind of where I got into this whole thing. Wow. It was funny though, because you had to have the transmitter matching the frequency of the uh, receiver right and the guy that ran the company he just could not figure that out so i had to color code them all and he finally got it but so fast forward now about 40 years and one of the guys that got me into magic tim wright uh he's back in ohio now but he found one of the original ones that i made on ebay this is probably 10 years ago and he sent it to me so, so i actually had the original prototype that i made and uh i'll keep that forever <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? How amazing. Now, the the magic then gave way because I guess you didn't have time. You went full-time to medical school. Well, yeah, and I still had a little time to some private engagement. Someone say, hey, would you do a thing for a dinner? And I would do that. But I, I certainly could not spend a lot of time at it. You mentioned you'd always had a fascination with art and design. So you sort of had an eye. Obviously, you've got an eye for inventing things and making things but you also your design led you to the artistic side of things you told me a, a fascinating little story about when you got to your first house and you didn't have loads of money so you started painting yeah it's the, the art actually went back to when I was a little kid uh, my father was a I used to call him a commercial artist but in fact he was a, a sign painter uh, and very good he he could do lettering without laying anything out, just do it freehand, and it was perfect. And so I grew up with that. In fact, our, it's funny, our, his shop was at our house, and I can, I think of our house, I can smell lacquer thinner to this day. Huh. Uh, acetone lacquer thinner because everything was paint. And I never remember him ever not having paint on his clothes. But he was, that's, I think, why I originally got into the art was because my father was an artist. Then we got our first house, and I always wanted original art on the walls. And, but I couldn't afford to have some known artist uh, work. So I decided I just, I'll do my own. And I did a few things that 
nothing spectacular, but I just wanted the original stuff there that you could see that was real paint. But I thought if I put my own name on it, that'd be kind of cheesy. And someone would see that and say, well, yes, you painted that. I, yeah, I know. So I came up with the name Warren Blades, and that's a combination of Warren Zevon and Harry Blades. Harry Blades was a finished carpenter that did some things around our house. <laughs> so I combined them to Warren Blades and started signing all my paintings, W Blades. And I kept that to this day. That's cool. It's a cool name, Warren Blades. Um, <laughs> your art is now taken over for reasons we'll go into. So your your art is out there, but <laughs> under the name Warren Blades. Kudos, congratulations. That's brilliant. Well, I always wanted to be, and this is going to sound kind of silly, famous, but anonymously. In other words, I, I don't want recognition myself. I'd like to do something that people recognize and under a total different name is fine. I just, uh, I, I've always wanted to do something that is, that has an impact on people in a good way. I, I, that's why I've never done, I've never, never done any art that is shocking or insulting or, uh, I just, I always want, want to do things that people would look at. And even if they don't like it and wouldn't want to put it on their wall, that it's at least pleasing to the eye and nothing uh, negative. Well, I guess that's, that's going to give you a lot of satisfaction. I mean, it would me. Especially like if you're if you're somewhere and you know they're all looking at uh, a painting that you've painted and it's, it's uh, under a pseudonym. <laughs> Great idea. I'd love to be in a crowd someday. <laughs> People looking at paintings that I did under a different name and just honestly <laughs> sit there and see what they say. Now you went through thirty years of being a surgeon, didn't you? Were you riding motorcycles at that time? Take us through some of the bikes you've, you've owned or ridden. Just give us a, an idea of your sort of style. Yeah, and my partners in practice thought it was really nuts when I went out and got a Honda CBR 1000 and started riding the street. And I come in at an office in the morning with, with my leathers and helmet. And yeah, they thought I was just out of my mind. Yeah. But I, I didn't, when I got back into it, I didn't just go out there and buy a leader bike, uh, which is obviously extremely dangerous if you, if you don't handle it the right way. I went through the safety course and I knew at that time that I was old enough to not have anything to prove to anyone, uh, but still young enough to be nimble and able to ride. So I thought it was a good time to get back into it. But patients sometimes thought I was nuts too, irresponsible even. How can you as an orthopedic surgeon ride a motorcycle? You know, they're not exactly brain surgeons or rocket scientists. <laughs> and uh, well, I, I actually had breakfast uh, a few years ago with a neurosurgeon and uh, a neurospace engineer. So yes, at the rock store. <laughs> so some motorcyclists actually are brain surgeons and rocket scientists. But then I, uh, once I started hanging around the rock store and getting to that family of incredible people down there, uh, I wanted another bike and I ended up with a, a BMW R1200RT. And it was a great bike, it was, it was first year it came out and real technical and had all the cruise control and heated grips and all that but it was just too tall for me and even with a sergeant seat that was a little bit shorter it still was too tall and I ended up uh, buying a R1100S BMW from a guy who was an engineer with BMW and brought it over for a charity ride so he was in Woodland Hills and I bought that from him I love that bike and then one thing led to another another couple of bikes and then the track bikes so so that's interesting. You went to a bigger displacement, but it was a lower bike. So do you mind me asking how tall you are? And 
if you know your inseam, I don't know if you do, but. I'm about 5'8". My inseam is 30, 30 inches. So I, uh, I don't have any bikes. I can put my feet flat on the ground. I can be comfortable with my toes on the ground, but that's about it. Yeah. For me, that's a bit nerve wracking. And uh, I, I recently read a nice, rode a nice low bike. It's a dual sport bike, the KLX 230S from Kawasaki. And I tell you, I felt so much more inclined to do more adventurous things because I could flat foot. I read your article on that and that was well written. I, you almost had me convinced I need one of those bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody does if you can afford to have that as well as, you know, a sort of big sport bike or an ADV bike if you've got that interest. So during your extremely busy life, as I'm finding out, <laughs> you also managed to uh, meet and marry a, a beautiful lady and produce five children in a short space of time. <laughs> I mentioned this because again, um, hats off to you. It's unusual and quite an achievement. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I've never done anything in a conventional way. And, uh, and usually at each step of the way, uh, people have said to me, wait, you're going to do what? Are you out of your mind? Uh, and I love that because if you have an idea and everyone loves it and says, oh, such a great idea. Uh, in my experience, that hasn't usually worked out. If people look at your idea and say, you are nuts, that will never work, then I think I've got a shot at it. So uh, the, the thing about meeting my wife is I was coming out to Southern California from Ohio to look for a fellowship. That's a one-year stint you do after uh, your residency to specialize in something in orthopedics. And through a friend of a friend, I met this woman, and it was just a business relationship. And I wanted to at least have some contacts out here in case I did land the that fellowship uh, spot. Right. So we talked back and forth a little bit, but I had when I interviewed for the fellowship, they, there were 400 people for two spots, and I didn't think I had a great shot at it. They said they let me know, and I thought I was back in Ohio, and I told my buddies in residency, I'm going to fly back up to California, unannounced, drop in to the place where the fellowship is, where these guys are in practice mm. and just tell them I'm serious about this and, and just see if that'd make a difference. Kind of like the, the magic thing with medical school, just have give them something else that sets me apart. And I couldn't afford to fly out here again, but, and stay at a hotel, I couldn't afford that or cars. And so I wrote to uh, this, to Beth uh, Brooks, the person I had met out here, and could I just sleep on your couch, you know, overnight? Uh, she said, no, you can't. <laughs> okay. So I said, well, that's fine. Can I, I, I'm coming out there anyway. Uh, can I take you out to dinner maybe? And she said, sure. So I came out here and dropped in on the fellowship and told them I was serious. And they said, the job's yours if you want it. I took it. And good move. We went out to dinner and uh, went to Venice Beach the next day and had a good time. I flew back to, <laughs> to uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And I sent her a couple of tickets to a Dan Fogelberg concert. He was playing in the Cleveland area and said, uh, would you like to go to the concert? She did. And we got engaged. Fantastic. You don't do things by halves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't do them out of, out of uh, careless haste. I, they're kind of well planned, but uh, in a very determined way. So did you um, think you would have that many children? I only say that because you had triplets. And so that can instantly you know give you more children than you you had uh you had on on the horizon 
we we talked about it. We wanted to have kids. We didn't talk about a specific number and had one uh, baby, and, and she was about a year and a half. Uh, Beth was pregnant again, and we went in for the ultrasound, and I walked into the, it was right down the hall from where my, where my office was, and I walked in, I looked at the monitor, and it looked like twins. I said, twins? And he said, no, three, maybe four, <laughs> and I can't, there's not a fifth. I th then it got kind of scary. And it turned out it was triplets. And uh, yeah, and that was fun. And then we decided, well, we had another one a year later. <laughs> so <laughs> bookends, there's one, three, and one. So. Sounds amazing. Sounds, you know, great fun. But of course, I didn't have to deal with the, the it must have just been full-time, hands-on the whole time. So many young children in a house. <laughs> Good for you. Well done. It was never quiet. And we we had to have a car that you could put five car seats in, and the only thing available at that time was a Land Cruiser, Toyota Land Cruiser. We could get all five car seats in it, so that worked out. Before the days of people carriers, as as we called them, sort of, uh, we had those in, in England. <laughs> Good for you, Brian. Busy life. <laughs> so, what sort of drew you to becoming a shoulder specialist? Well, when I did the fellowship, it was in sports medicine. And everyone was doing knee surgery and, you know, surgery, but shoulder arthroscopy, you know, going in with a, an arthroscope through tiny incisions was just kind of getting started at that time. And everybody was doing knees. And I just thought, I don't want to be just one of a 10,000 people doing more knees. Uh, shoulder were kind of uh, new at the time. And so I focused on that. And then a couple of years into practice, I decided I am just going to do shoulders. And a lot of people didn't like to do shoulders. They, they're they not the easiest joint to work with. So I decided mm -hmm. that a lot of the other orthopedists uh, helped me out by sending me their shoulders. They didn't want to take care of them. So it worked out in a lot of ways. Just developed from there. And you'd had experience of, of sports. You played football, didn't you? You, you would, I, I can't remember the names because, you know, I don't know the American history of football and sport, but you had some training as a youngster for football didn't you and uh the the school where i went uh my elementary school and high school uh we it wasn't a real academic place as much as they were focused on football and that was big and bill maskell was the coach and he'd been there since the mid 50s and had an incredible record one of the winningest coaches in high school history and he was my next door neighbor i'd be out in the side yard in between the houses throwing a ball around and and he said, well, why don't you play football? And I said, well, I, I don't know how good I can be. And he wanted me to be the quarterback. So his son uh, was a quarterback in college, but he became a college uh, uh, quarterback coach. So he'd come home in the summers and we worked at it a lot. And and I ended up playing. And that, that helped me a lot because I'm not sure I would have even stayed in school had it not been for that. I probably would have. I, I was very bored in uh, high school and I had a chance to just drop out at 16 and, and go into business with my father, you know, paint signs with my dad. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of close to that, but I still remember those palm trees in California. <laughs> Amazing. What I'm learning is that you don't do things by halves. You really, once you, you get your teeth into something, you go full on. I think you have to. And, but I, I knew that the only way to do that was to, to focus on the academics and, but coach Maskell, I think I credit him a lot with this because he, convinced me that football was a way to go and work hard at it and support the team and uh that kept me in school so i i credit him for that and he has a book as well yes yeah there it, it wasn't a real uh published but it was 
published in a limited way, but uh, they, yeah, several people wrote a lot of things about our team and the, the history of that team over the years. But uh, yeah, it's called Galesburg Gusta Football. We love you. And it was, uh, it just, it went through the history of Bill Maskell and the teams that he worked with. And, and so you then ended up needing, your shoulders needed attention yourself. <laughs> I still have some of the original video of, and there was no video back then. There were, we had somebody at all of our football games in high school uh, record them. And these were on uh, 16 millimeter film. And we had watched the films Monday morning, you know, try to figure out how we could improve and all that. But I was able to get a hold of some of those films. And I have the the actual video of getting taking a couple of those hits where it dislocated my shoulder. And and they, they were hits that today they wouldn't allow. But back then, anything went. So, yeah, I, I took a lot of hits. But the shoulder was fine for 20 years. But then it became arthritic. And I put up with it for a long time. And finally... Uh, ironically, I needed my shoulder replaced. And I had done thousands of shoulder replacements, but now how do I pick out the guy who's going to replace mine? Well, yes, no do-it-yourself there, is there? No, but it's like a plumber uh, needing some plumbing done at home. Who does he hire? So I spent a lot of time researching different people. I, and one guy that I've met at several conferences did the same procedure that I did, same technique and all that. And he was up in Seattle, and I called him up and told him the situation. He said... Well, come on up here and we'll take care of it. And he did and did a great job. So I'm thankful for that. Yeah, that's a relief. So your surgical career ended quite suddenly, didn't it? You you said you were a surgeon for about 30 years, I think. Yes. And, and I probably had another five years or so that I would have been in practice, but uh, I won't get real technical, but I ended up with a prostate issue, cancer. Right. And... I neglected it because I was so busy taking care of patients. I was supposed to go back and repeat my labs and I let it go for six months. So you, you just knew that you had high PSAs? Well, I had, it was slowly climbing and it wasn't way out of range, but my urologist said at least repeat it in six months because we got to see where it's going. And I neglected that. That was my fault. I accept responsibility for that, but I would encourage anybody listening to this, guys mm. you know, over the age of 50 or so, don't neglect that, you know, let your urologist take your, or your, your primary care doctor, but can save your life. But when yes. And I second that, you know, my husband's been in the same position and cancer is scary and prostate cancer is embarrassing and people put it off, but you need to be checked. Absolutely. And, uh, but by the time they just found out that's what it was, it was spread enough that they couldn't take the whole thing out at the time of surgery. So they, said if it is stays under control fine if not uh we have to talk about some other things and then it psa went up again so it recurred and i went through radiation pelvic radiation and uh androgen suppression kind of a form of chemotherapy and i just it was feeling exhausted but that didn't put me out of practice i only missed a week of practice during this whole thing but the, it either coincidentally or as a result i don't know i and this is real technical, and I'll, I, I won't get into the depths of it, but I ended up with Parsonage-Turner syndrome. And what that is is a brachial plexopathy. And what that is is the nerves that come out of your neck and go down your arm, uh, they kind of intermix and divide into various groups. It's called the brachial plexus. And, and, it, and it became involved, and I, just, I woke up one morning with a loss of 
sensation in my hand and I couldn't use my hand well. Gosh. And I still, it was just my right hand. And I, I still worked. I still operated. And I told the people in the operating room, I, the people I worked with, I said, I may look a little awkward and I'd modify the way I would use instruments, but I could still uh, carry on like I always did. But if I, and I told them, if you think that I don't look like I'm safe doing this, tell me and I will stop. I wasn't going to put anyone at risk by that. I'm sure, you know, patients and, and their care is, is always going to be primary for any surgeon. So I'm sure they'd have told you if they thought anything was untoward. And I, and I know all these people real well. I'd worked with them for years and we all were on the same page there. But then it progressed to the point where I couldn't operate anymore. And that's when I told my partners, I, I have to hang it up now. Well, that sounds, well, it probably was devastating and shocking at the time, but you're a very resourceful chap. <laughs> as I'm learning it wasn't uh it wasn't devastating to me you know I hate this that sounds odd to say that uh I loved what I did uh the technical part of it and taking care of patients and all that the bureaucracy though was getting worse and worse and so I I don't regret stepping away from it I don't miss it I and I don't think I even retired I I just switched careers <laughs> I'm doing something mm -hmm. so so then you moved across to full-time artist, which is incredible. <laughs> and I still have this uh, imposter syndrome. I, I, I have a hard time even calling myself an artist. I think of an artist as, you know, this doing fine art and all this. I, I'm, I paint. <laughs> no, you are an artist. You are. You, you, you know, you have ideas and that's, that's the starting point. Um, a lot of people just can copy, but you, you have ideas and, and you lay them down with your chosen medium so yes you are an artist and and you know you're you're professional you're selling so yes you are an artist <laughs> um but how did you cope with not being able to use your right hand or did you carry on with some modified method well that's what seems odd about this and how do i ride motorcycles on the track with the hand thing uh I, this is difficult to explain uh if my hand is within my visual field I remember what it felt like to for example pick up a glass or hold a cup of coffee when it's out of my vision it's someone else's hand it, it, it's odd to say that that's called a somatosensory deficit so I do a lot of things left-handed uh I can have limited function of the hand if I put a brace on it and I velcro strap a brush to that brace and then support it on a wooden plank over the surface of the painting I can still manage to lay down paint it takes a little longer but it just you have to be resourceful and if you lost uh part of something well find something else that works yeah the body is amazing like that isn't it absolutely it helps you it wants to get on your, your body helps you to adapt for sure I've been in some situations um but I understand that when you using left or right hand actually accesses different parts of the brain so your artwork probably has changed slightly over the years well i i think so yeah yeah there's a mirror image thing that i guess hard to explain and uh people try to define it but there's a mirror image effect that takes place in the brain and neuroplasticity uh, part of the brain adapts to some new task and and i don't understand it but i i can experience it that's fascinating and I'm going to touch also on because you know you seem to have uh, delved into many many different sort of hobbies and careers, uh, you know, uh, workplace situations. But I did 
say to you when we were going to have this chat, you know, make sure you're not in a big echoey kitchen. And you said, you know, I have a soundproofed room. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, but turns out you're a drummer as well. So how, where in your life did the drumming come in? Okay, this is another funny story. I was probably uh, 11, 12 years old, and we had this uh, social group in, in this town. And it was a thing where every Tuesday night or something, we would meet in a basement of a church and uh and do social things it was just a, a and we planned to go to an ice skating thing or go skiing or do something but we would meet there and one night when we met there there was a band playing this rock band just local guys and the doctor in town one of the few doctors that i knew his son was the drummer and i was mesmerized watching this band play and he was drumming and i just thought I've got to do that. Why, why can't I do what he does? And I was just blown away. And I approached him later and I said, is there any way you could show me how to do that? And he was kind of funny. He said, well, uh, maybe you could help me out. I got to wash my dad's car every week. And so could, you could pay me to wash the car and I'll show you how to play drums. And I saved my money and bought uh, used set of drums and put it in the garage and he'd come over and show me some of the basics and I learned a lot from him but this band that he was in they were all local guys in town and unfortunately uh, one morning Saturday morning I was probably in junior high then Saturday morning there's a knock at the door and three of the band members are there my mom answers and these guys all have long hair and she said there's some guys here and I don't like the way they looked and <laughs> that's there's a bunch of hippies here to see you so they they came in and this is the tragedy he said uh Grant the drummer died last night and he had some accident he ended up his car in the up in the Kalamazoo River and but and it was kind of odd they they just said we need a drummer would you like to be our drummer and I my parents went nuts they said absolutely not and I begged them and finally they said well okay and i so i drummed for this and this was not some big rock band we were small town guys and we would play some of the little bars around there and so that's why i got into the drumming and that's amazing from that time on i still wanted to have drums so probably 20 years ago i bought a set of uh pearl sessions and but uh, it's TJ uh, owning a set of drums does not make one a drummer. <laughs> so I can't I can't call myself a drummer. I drum, but I'm not a drummer. I haven't tried, but <laughs> yeah, they, it certainly looks complicated. It's uh, another friend of ours, Joel Larson. He's he was the founder of the Grassroots, the original Grassroots, and we've been to see. I mean, yeah, drumming is just another ambidextrous type of hobby or skill it just blows my mind well it's a uh, very cathartic in a way I mean it's physical and I never read music it's I and a lot of the drummers I know didn't either it's a kind of a feel you get and and watching other drummers and trying to modify some of the things and uh yeah I I just it's a great feeling that's why I built a soundproof room though because it's not totally soundproof but I didn't want to annoy the neighbors so when I'm out here banging the drums, you can barely hear it. Hmm, that's interesting. And rhythmic things tend to be good, good for the soul, good for the body. So I can imagine that. 
Um, I also notice you've been published a lot for your your um, surgical knowledge and in various uh, medical papers, etc. And uh, I couldn't help but spot that pickleball. Um, you do a sort of column in a pickleball magazine, and this to me is quite a new sport. Well, it's uh, it actually started back in the '60s, but it just smoldered for a long time. It was kind of put together from various parts. This guy had up in Washington, and uh, but then more recently, probably over the last five years, it started to catch on. And I think one of the reasons it it got popular is that it tends to be a little bit older population that maybe they were tennis players before or they were into a lot of sports, but now they can't move quite as quickly and they work more on finesse than power and, and being able to move quickly. So it was appealing to a lot of people who wanted to still stay active in a racket sport or paddle sport. So uh, my wife got very involved in it and to the point where she's very competitive. She enters a lot of tournaments and got to meet a lot of people in this sport. And we got together with a group of people and, and helped create this magazine and company in pickleball. So they asked me if I would do a sports column for it. And it, it's nothing major. It's just a, a little, a few paragraphs that I have in uh, most of the issues about stretching and preventing injury, uh, how to deal with certain injuries. Hmm, that's interesting. What are you riding now motorcycle-wise? Well, my favorite bike is that I've got a 1098, uh, Ducati 1098S. And it was 2007 when they first came out with that bike. And I thought that was almost the equivalent bike of when they came out with a 916, which was a, the style of it was really, I thought, very cool. And uh, so I, I really liked the 1098 when it came out. And I still love it to this day. I had to have a lot of suspension modifications on it to fit my style. But I love that bike. But for the track, I've got a CBR 1000 uh, Honda that I ride. And a uh, Kawasaki 636. Right. And you still riding track? Oh, yeah, a lot. And uh, in fact, I'm, I'm an instructor with Reg Pridmore in class rides. Oh, awesome. And do you get a lot of mature people there at the school? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's His school is not focused on, on racing techniques. It's more on street safety, but using a track to develop your skills. So it's, it's a, if someone wants to do a track day, this is a great place to do it because it's very safe. You know, as instructors, we're out there just making sure that everyone is doing things in a safe way. And we go through drills that emphasize, you know, breaking and how to enter a corner and do it safely. So, oh, it's, it's a, it's a great school for uh, doing track work and not getting too intense on the, the idea of racing. Mm, sounds great. Sounds good. I'm always one. To, I always advocate training because I my motorcycling career didn't start with training and it's been to my detriment. You know, we didn't um, as kids in England. That's where I started. We didn't do dirt biking and off roading around the backyard. We didn't have the space for that. And it wasn't a thing. And then we didn't have to have any training in order to get a license. I just got a Suzuki 250cc and did a bit of practice on that. It was a friend's. And then I bought um, a GT185 with aced handlebars, which looked really cool, but were impossible, actually, <laughs> to ride with, do a U-turn or... <laughs> but learning to ride in England, didn't you have... You had the advantage, I think, of the weather. You you could a lot of wet weather riding, which... <laughs> yeah, there is that one advantage. I don't mind the rain. <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, that uh, you learn a lot riding in the rain. 
and how to be smooth. You and, do. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? So many different types of riding scenarios. That's the good thing about these days. You can travel now. You can do these adventure rides where you ride overseas quite easily. You know, we had Ecuador bikes on here and uh, you can just go and have a fantastic holiday and ride completely different bikes in completely different terrains. We just did a, a couple of track, a few track days over in Spain and Portugal. It was amazing. The, two of the world famous tracks, Jerez and Portimao. Wow. And so we rented bikes over there, R1s, and had a great crew taking care of us. And that was so much fun because you're on these historic tracks that are just so well-groomed and maintained. And, oh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that must be a buzz. That would be a brilliant. So what's on the bucket list? What else are you going to wend your way into? Anything brand new or? Well, oh, there, it's a secret. No, I, <laughs> uh, I guess one of my goals here, and it seems kind of silly, I... I want to have a gallery someday in Carmel, you know, Carmel by the sea. Oh, yes. It's beautiful there. And and that's close to Laguna Seca as well, which I think is being redone as we speak. Um, they're resurfacing it. But uh, yeah, I, I love that area. And that's a like a mecca for artists. You know, every dog and every artist wants to be in Carmel. And uh, that's my one of my goals is to get some, some of my work in the galleries there. And I believe you will do it. I mean, having heard what you've achieved, you sort of um, just see something like the look of it, persevere with it and make it happen. Well, that's uh, the perseverance is important. I think there's the concept of grit. And I always thought grit was kind of a slang term. It's not. It's an actual term. And Angela Duckworth has uh, several books out on the concept of grit. And if you look at uh, various professions or various parts of our lives, you can take people into a, a group that are extremely intelligent, great on all the tests and all of that, and get in there and not do so well in whatever that profession is. But you take someone who maybe isn't quite as intelligent and didn't have all the training, but they're determined. And every time they get knocked down, they get back up and they're comfortable being uncomfortable and they just keep pushing and pushing. And they're the ones that end up succeeding, uh, the ones that have the perseverance. That's fascinating. I didn't realize grit was a word. I've had a great time chatting with you. I've learned so much today and I'm sure everybody who listens will be just as enthralled with uh, your varied life. <laughs> so we'll end on grit. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gary. Thanks, TJ. <laughs> we'll catch you on the road. All right. Take care.